0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On this week's episode, we interview Alan Tian, who I got the pleasure of meeting over a year ago in Guiyang, China at the Big Data Conference, where he was representing a company he's an advisor of. I asked Alan not too long ago if he knew anyone that might want to be interviewed on a podcast. He said, Give me a moment. Eighteen minutes later in my inbox were responses from the CEO of Upwork, Veeam, the founder of Rotten Tomatoes, and several other people that I couldn't believe anyone could get a hold of, let alone in under 20 minutes on a Saturday afternoon and personally responded saying, yes, Alan, anything for you. I'd love to help. This man is amazingly connected and has done so many things that once you hear about it, you're going to be impressed. You are listening to Silicon Valley by the
0: Investors Podcast, where your host, Sean Flynn, interviews famous entrepreneurs and business leaders in tech. Discover how money is made in Silicon Valley and where tech is going before it gets there.
1: Alan, thank you for taking the time to be with us today on Silicon Valley.
0: Hi, Sean. Thanks for inviting me.
1: So, Alan, Before going to PayPal and eBay, you had a 10-year career consultant in Silicon Valley. Could you kind of tell us what you were doing there and the ecosystem at that time?
0: Sure. For a little bit of historical context, eBay had purchased PayPal right when I joined 2002. This was right after the bottom of the bubble. Silicon Valley was a deserted area. 101 was wide open, no traffic or anything. So pretty scary times in Silicon Valley, but eBay was still going great. And PayPal was just getting integrated into eBay, riding on the coattails of eBay's growth. So I actually joined to help them on their merchant services side. And funny, John, back then, we didn't even know it was called merchant services. We were so, I would say, naive, and we called it off eBay. So anyway, I built the first set of APIs. But then things really got interesting that uh, we got into China. eBay bought a company in China, the number one auction site in China called Ichu had ninety plus market share and about six months later they were pulling PayPal in and I was leading the product management team to build the domestic product for PayPal.
1: So with that entering the Asian market, what did you learn from that experience and what struggles did you face at that time?
0: It's all the classic struggles you would expect. Just launching the product was a gigantic problem. Literally, the largest project PayPal had ever started on the time. Forty full-time employees were hired for the project. All sorts of crazy stuff happened. eBay had an outage, and or missed its first stock earnings, and PayPal had an outage. So, just getting it out the door—you know, translating a million characters, changing our database to UTF8 to set double byte—I mean, it was insane, as you can imagine. But we ended up launching in. June 2005. And for my troubles, they shipped me out to China to be the China product manager on the ground. So it was super thrilling times. You know, eBay was just about to launch their domestic product. They, they migrated each net to the core system of eBay, the core engine. And, you know, we were getting ready for the full on fight. And we thought we had open field, open territory. It just could be localizing, and that was it. And we were so wrong. At the time, Alibaba was purely a B2B company, and unbeknownst to us, they launched a secret. Jack Ma didn't even tell his own employees. They, he took some, uh, a crack team, put it back into his house where she, he launched Alibaba in with his core team, and basically hived them off from Alibaba headquarters. And they worked on this Taobao product which started off as a defensive measure to block eBay. And really, it became our primary competitor within a year. eBay's launch in China was not successful. The migration had massive problems on localization issues. Too many for me to explain. And then PayPal basically was struggling because eBay was struggling. They were the front of the house and we were the cashiers and we couldn't grow if eBay was getting crushed by Taobao, which was just doing everything it could. A scrappy startup that bought like crazy and ended up defeating the world player in auctions.
1: Now, if Taobao wasn't there, do you think eBay and PayPal at that time, after a little bit of adjustment and localization, would have eventually obtained that market?
0: That's an interesting alternative history thought process. I think someone else would have stepped in. I mean, the market in China is, is incredibly competitive. I think someone would have saw the opportunity. However, one of the big things I wanted to point out here was You know, if you read a Harvard Business School case study, which, you know, this eBay entering and losing in China was one, they're written by MBAs and they usually get all the business points right. So if you read it, it's just kind of a laundry list of why American companies fail when they enter China, whether it's the 5000 miles distance from headquarters and not understanding the local culture, not hiring the local team. Government intervention is always a popular one. A lot of these Internet services that are essentially SaaS, uh, software as a service, they are operating 24-7, 365 in many countries around the world, with typically U.S. or Western countries as the bulk of the revenue. So you get soon after the hype of the launch, which is all exciting and yay, we launched in China. But what happens afterwards when there's a P1 bug, you know, a bug that is a significant problem? versus a P2 or P3 bug in the United States. And if they do a a revenue ROI comparison, that P3 bug in the U.S. could save or generate a million dollars, whereas the one in China, since we're free anyway, we're not making any money. So the prioritization of global features on a global technology platform becomes the primary problem. And that's why I think many, many, and I'm going to generalize eBay and PayPal, many U.S. internet companies that run a general system, a centralized system, have trouble going international when the culture is quite different. So expanding to Europe is a little easier because it's very similar to the U.S., but when you start going to the East and Asia, it's so different, and yet the, these core systems have very difficult time changing
1: with it. You also worked with Facebook, Stripe, and many other companies in their infancy to enter the Asian Pacific region. Even though that was just 10 years ago, how have things changed for companies wanting to enter the Asian Pacific market from the U.S.?
0: I don't think things have changed. In fact, they might have gotten harder. In the past, back then, there was no real competitor. So Bo Xiao graduated from HBS, went back to China, and built EachNet, which is the company eBay eventually bought. America was leading on all these great ideas. Today, Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu are the big three, so BAT, they control almost the entire internet. And they snap up startups as soon as they start getting good traction in China. So the competition in China is fierce. The business models are fierce. So I actually think it's perhaps even harder for companies to enter China
1: today. With your background, your entire career, including now, is focused in the fintech area. Can you tell us about kind of the evolution of fintech over the last 10 or so years and what you're seeing now?
0: We didn't even know it was called fintech when we were at PayPal. Clearly, it is a fintech, so the words financial plus technology, applying it. Now it's one of the largest spots of VC funding globally. Much of the money coming from Alibaba, actually, it's kind of skewed if you look at China reports. The opportunity is, frankly, the banks have let people down and have not kept up with the consumer experience that consumers demand now because they're seeing it from other apps, whether it's Amazon or other industries are leading the charge on what consumers are expecting. And so technology firms are finding this opportunity in financial space because the banks have trouble innovating. Due to their anchor systems, many are running on AS400s or mainframes, old legacy systems, that's very, very hard to change. And keep up with the times. They're cutting up the suite of services and products that banks offer and just picking off small pieces of it. So like SoFi will go and say, Oh, we'll start off with student loans or something like that. Incredible opportunities. And they have a hundred engineers focusing on making what you know in the nineties we call best practice reengineering. It's basically what's the best way you could do this if you could do anything you wanted.
1: So where are the best startups in the world? are doing this? Are they here in the US? Are they in Israel? Are they all over? Where would you say they're mostly located?
0: I think Silicon Valley is coming up with a lot of very creative, original ideas. But I think where it's really hitting scale is China, where maybe it's not the brand new idea, but they take an idea that they see from Silicon Valley and quickly iterate way faster than the US. They throw tons of engineers at it. And I think where China really is iterating on, different from the US, is in their business models. So Americans and VCs tend to try to push towards profitability and and making revenue, whereas China is very much a value-added service. So if they give the base wave and then try to figure out how to monetize on top of it, expecting the volume to really make up for it, so they're not expecting profitability. heavy, high profit margins per transaction they make it up on the volume. I know this sounds kind of trite. WeChat, you know, they, they launched with Tencent. Tencent is one of the largest internet companies in the world. And WeChat was really just a chat app. Think of it like a WhatsApp. And then they just kept on adding features and functionality to the side, expanding the capability of it to the point where now it's like a Swiss army knife. WeChat is really just a container upon which they can launch a lot of mini apps within it to access tons and tons of features, whether it's library book or paying your utility bills or doing the equivalent of Uber in it or Airbnb. That's all within the WeChat app. And Alibaba has a similar strategy. So they expand horizontally, whereas American companies tend to focus vertically on their one small area. That's a very different mentality in business model. We'll still have to see which one wins, but I, I think it's a fascinating way where they can get massive scale quickly because a lot of these startups that Tencent buys or Alibaba buys can get access to the hundreds of millions of users on the platform.
1: So with that availability for these early stage companies, once they're acquired, to rapidly expand, what's kind of stopping them or just containing them to China? Why haven't we seen much influence here in the West?
0: I think it's because there's one so much fierce competition in China, they're primarily focused on keeping their turf in China. So Alibaba and Tensor are behemoths that I would say kind of like Google and Facebook fighting each other. It takes so much energy and China has so much room to grow. You know, when we're in China, we go to a small quote third tier city and I would ask the taxi driver how many people were there and they would say a million. That'd be like a, a small city. That's one. And two is I always thought it was interesting that, you know, the problems that eBay and PayPal had entering in China, is literally the mirror image of Chinese companies leaving China. Their cultural issues and language barriers and not knowing how to work internationally are an equivalent barrier for them to exit China as it is for American companies to enter China.
1: Now, on my last visit to China, I noticed everyone using QR codes. Scan food at restaurants, even people on the street when they're begging for money. Instead of giving them physical money, you could just scan their QR code and transfer it. What was your experience with QR code technology and how come we haven't adopted it over here in the U.S.?
0: I know many of your listeners will, from the U.S., if they haven't been to China, will think you're doing a little bit of hyperbole. In reality, it's what you said. It's the adoption of QR codes as a payment method has essentially become ubiquitous. Everyone, including the beggar on the street, will have a sign with a QR code on it. And if you try to give them cash, they don't even want it. They want you to scan their QR code and transfer it. So this is fascinating. I, I was with Visa in Singapore at the time, and we were looking at our China strategy. And Visa, as you can imagine, just really did not believe in the QR code. Americans, you know, in the U.S. and headquarters were saying, "Oh, it's so confusing. You know, do you scan me or do I scan you? And how does it work? And blah blah blah." Well, in China. WeChat, which as we said, was, you know, in hundreds of millions closing in on a billion users. And the way they would exchange information is like, instead of me telling you my Twitter handle or using my email, is that they would show a QR code. So I would show you my QR code on my phone and you would scan me, Sean, if we met at a meeting and we wanted to exchange contact information. So through the social method, they trained all their users on how to use QR codes. Then they attached bank accounts to allow payments. And then they got massive adoption of people to use the bank accounts through their Chinese New Year, which is the equivalent Christmas in China. And a huge tradition is to share Hongbao's or red envelopes with each other, so small amounts of money. And now you could do it over your social network. And then they gamified that. So there was a chance that if you were watching the show, you know, the equivalent of the New Year's ball drop. If you watch it on Chinese New Year, both Alibaba and Tencent got onto this war where they would offer prizes. So people then all signed up for the small, small chance to win a puny amount of money. So once you got people who knew how to use QR codes, they attached their bank accounts and they were willing to trade on it, then in China, the adoption was huge. When we did a survey in 2013, 14, we literally interviewed, you know, people in five cities, it was about a seven, eight percent penetration rate, growing quickly, but we didn't know where it was gonna go. Within four or five years, it's completely dominated to the point where stores actually prefer QR codes. And if you're in places where Chinese tourists visit, you can actually start experiencing. You probably don't even recognize it, but you'll see popping up at airports and DFS. And if you go to Vegas, Hawaii, New York, LA, San Francisco, you'll start seeing these WeChat and Alipay bugs, the logos on physical merchant store windows, just like you see Visa, MasterCard, and Discover. So it's pushing out, but Americans don't use it. So your question of why it's not adopted in the US is, frankly, because our infrastructure worked. Credit cards are, the plastic is pretty well penetrated. There's POS or point of sale terminals that work. And to the point that it's so effective that even Apple Pay, which is so popular, Apple as a product and the power of Apple's marketing pushed very, very, very few people to Apple Pay, even though it's probably the best experience, you know, just waving your phone at the terminal and you're done without having to turn on an app or opening it. So it's amazing. It's an example where, New technology can leapfrog old technology. You know, the old example of mobile phones allowing countries to leapfrog landlines without having to drop in landlines down.
1: Talking about leapfrogging technology, what do you see as the next wave of fintech?
0: Well, I think there's gonna be a convergence. So today I was mentioning the fintechs were picking off little functions in the overall breadth of products that banks offer. I think there'll be a convergence. Many of these startups can't stand up by themselves today. Even today, VC money is starting to tighten up at you know the next recession or downturn. Many of these companies can't stand alone and the bigger companies can pick them up and glue them back together into a quilt of great products. So I think that could happen in the US. As I mentioned, in China, that's already happening. So I think there's just that business model piece. But from a technology standpoint, I am pretty excited about blockchain. So I'm not talking about the coins themselves, cryptocurrency coins. I think those are a little faddish. So, you know, participate at your own risk. But blockchain as a technology is kind of like where the Internet was in what's called in 1997 or 1998. If you're old enough and you can think back to that period, many of us were skeptical where the internet would go. You know, those were still dial-up periods where you would hear the modem and you know the baud rates were super low. Security was not figured out yet. There was pretty low trust. So a lot of those issues are kind of where blockchain is. But there's so much money and so many smart people working on it. A lot of these base tools will resolve some of the obstacles people say is blocking blockchain like it's too slow or it uses up too many resources there are many people working on a lot of those problems but the benefits are quite good for certain use cases many of them where you can't have the data change so the immutability of blockchain so titling or supply chain management tracking all the different pieces of paper today that go through the an entire Just use an example of shipment from china to the stores in walmart you know, there's a ridiculous amount of documentation and tracking that's done still today by paper or VI ancient protocols that could be moved to blockchain. So I think those are interesting areas to
1: watch. Right now, you're focused on working with early stage companies in that fintech area. What else are you working on right now?
0: Well, Sean, this may sound a little mundane. I'm, I'm actually working at a bank, Central Pacific Bank here in Hawaii. And it may seem a little strange to kind of go backwards to a bank, but there are 10,000 community banks in the United States, many of them of which are in the same state where, as I mentioned before, legacy systems haven't had to compete at the same level. We're actually relatively fortunate in Hawaii that we have 3,000 miles of ocean, but that used to help us when competing banks had to drop branches down. And now the digital world is changing a lot of that. So banks on the mainland, which is what Hawaiians call the contiguous 48 states in the U.S., they don't have this luxury of distance and the competition is fierce, especially not only from the fintechs, but the big national banks, whether it's Wells Fargo or Citi, they they have hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in this technology. So Really now, it's how can community banks, which I believe are a critical fabric of society, how can they stay alive, keep employing their employees and offer a service to customers that the digital guys can't? So we probably don't want to walk in the branch all the time, but occasionally we might want to see someone face to face. But we also expect the digital experience to be at the level that fintechs are offering so that's kind of the interesting intersection i'm facing now what's the real world application in banks i think that could be generalized to many banks so i think that's an interesting space you know fiserv is a huge bank operating system they just bought first data for 30 billion dollars so there's a lot of opportunity in this space supporting banks Kind of the b2b space i think a lot of people focus on the b2c space or c2c you know where a fintech app is going directly after the consumers but many of these neo banks that went straight to consumers are finding some challenges in that they have difficulty scaling you can get the first couple million users how do you get more after that how do you stay profitable how do you not implode under your own weight whereas banks have the licenses have the assets they need the technology so i think the marriage of technology to the banking system is an interesting space uh, that's why I'm I'm working in it to learn much more about it.
1: When you're saying the banks have to have licenses, would that be the area of barrier for these new companies that are entering the market or what's stopping someone just randomly from opening up a bank on their own and trying to compete with these established banks?
0: The banking industry is incredibly regulated just like insurance and that's why it's been difficult for companies to enter. So Startups are often either in the gray area and hoping that regulators give them some room or just don't even see them, they're not on the horizon, or they partner with the bank to borrow the license, so that it requires a pretty progressive bank to be supporting them, or they kind of get a simpler license, so like PayPal has a money transmitter license, or Veeam, the consultant with for entering China, has 50 money transmitter licenses, which is a much lower bar than banking license. Your job is to move the money, but you don't have to hold the asset and keep it secure. So many of them will choose kind of a simpler license to work with and then very carefully work out what they can do, go into the gray zone.
1: Ask again about the licenses. Is this something that actually helping out the established companies who fend off new competition?
0: Yeah, the licenses take a, a very long time if you can even get them. So many of them, they're kind of like these chicken and egg problems, it's like, your executive staff needs to have five years of experience in the banking and the risk area and the asset area, blah, 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 blah. So all these things sometimes are very difficult to get even if you check all the check boxes. So it's quite amazing. For example, a startup like Veeam was able to get them. However, their senior staff came from Western Union, knew the regulators knew what they wanted. So it was possible. And generally, it's not that easy to get licenses. So if you have deep pockets and you have grand aspirations, getting a license may help because it's a competitive barrier to everyone else. However, generally, it's very, very hard. But generally, the licensing area is fraught with issues. Regulators are loath to give a license, so they might say, well, try it for a little bit and we'll see. So then you're working in the gray area for a long time. So it depends on the risk appetite and, and how much money you have to run with it. However, large companies, you know, can can try it. And I think often many fintechs decide it's just better to partner with a progressive bank that's willing to take on some of these risks.
1: Alan, what technology out there do you think our viewers are going to see or will impact their life or possibly companies that they know about in the coming two or three years?
0: I mentioned blockchain earlier. I'm not sure two to three years and it might be invisible. Again, I'll use Veeam as an example where blockchain is used to move the money across the oceans, but the end, it comes back to the fiat currency. So as a user, you wouldn't even know that blockchain is being, or when it's used and when it's not being used. So I think we'll see some examples of that. If blockchain goes into home title insurance or something like that, you may not even know it's the title's being stored on blockchain or that it's ensuring the safety of the title through blockchain. QR code, definitely in Asia, so it's not even a new thing in Asia. The, William Gibson, I think, has this famous quote of, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. So the future of payments is already in China. It's just that we don't see it here in the US. So I think Facebook teams and such have sent their teams to Asia. And the first thing, the Asia team out of Singapore will take that product management team of 10, 20 people with their designers and show them how the QR code is working and how the apps have fully integrated all the different apps, so the breadth of apps available. And I think Facebook has those type of opportunities where it can expand beyond just being a chat or social media. You know, there's a big push for their own cryptocurrency to enter into payments.
1: And Alan, you've spent time here in Silicon Valley, in Asia, and now you're in Hawaii. Just wondering why the move to Hawaii versus all these other places?
0: Well, as you can imagine, I think it's wonderful here in Hawaii. It's a little more difficult to find a tech job. You know this concept of human-centered design. There's a book called Design Your Life, and these are Stanford professors from the D School. It's the most popular class, originally for graduates and now in undergraduates. And they're essentially applying human-centered design principles, which is what many startups, you know, following the lean and agile approaches, realize it's better to figure out what Customers want, and then quickly iterate and test those insights early on. Before instead of just building a product and launching it, well, they figured out that methodology could apply to your own life, and that's what I did. You know, a couple of years ago when I was finishing up my role in Singapore, I said, "Where do I want to live?" So it took three years to make that dream come true, and and now I'm living here, looking out at the gorgeous Pacific Ocean.
1: Wow, Alan, thank you for all your time today on Silicon Valley. If people want to hear or get in touch with you, what is the best way to go about it?
0: My LinkedIn is up to date. I have my contact information there. So love to chat with anyone who wants to talk more.
1: All right. We will have that information in the show notes. And Alan, once again, I want to thank you for all your time today. And I look forward to having you on the show in the future. Thanks, Sean. really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.